Good morning, everyone. It is such a joy for me uh, to be up here uh, one more time this summer and to close out what we started. And it's just been such a a joy for me to prepare, to learn under Zach, to work with everyone, and um, to be up here and to just share with you from the Word. It has just been an encouragement to my heart, and I hope and pray it's been encouraging to you. And I'm excited. I'm excited for today. We get to close out our short series on personal evangelism entitled Humbly Heralding the Gospel, where we have been learning from Paul's teaching and example in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 on how to more effectively share the gospel with others. And if you remember, we started this series in verses 15 through 18, where we learned about the necessity of humbly heralding the gospel. Paul taught us about the rights that are rightfully his in the gospel and how he refused those rights because he would endure anything and would rather even die than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel and to deprive himself of his boasting of preaching the free gift of the free gospel. He showed us his posture of humble submission to the gospel. He showed us how the free gift of the gospel is his highest pleasure and how there is a necessity laid on in a stewardship given to each and every believer to go and preach that free gift, a call from God from above and from within. To keep the gospel and the furtherance of the gospel at the forefront of all decisions and conversations was Paul's exhortation to us in those first few verses, to live your life for the gospel and receive the reward of a joy in sharing God's word with others, God's free gift with others, and thus giving glory to him. And two weeks ago, we learned in verses 19 to 23 exactly how we are supposed to do this. What does that look like? What's our strategy? What's our approach? How do we effectively humble and humbly share? What is our purpose? What is our, our aim? And Paul masterfully shows us a practical approach and a purposeful aim in these verses. He first showed us that our practical approach could be seen and summarized in a Christ-given principle and a crucial relationship. Paul told us that in order to effectively give up your rights for the gospel and effectively share it, we need to follow Christ in his Christ-given principle of becoming a slave to all that we saw in Mark 10, 43-45. And this approach was this. Instead of abusing your rights in the gospel, you use your rights in the gospel and your freedom in the gospel by making yourself a servant to all, by subjecting yourself under the, the practices and customs of the people to whom you are ministering to. However, Paul did not become exactly like them, but only yielded to the things of indifference that we talked about, things that were not prohibited by God. It would not cause there to be confusion around the gospel. And he did this approach to follow Christ's example of love. This approach is one of Christ-like, self-giving, sacrificial love, and Paul saw that if this is how Christ revealed himself to us in order to save our souls, then it is how we ought to reveal ourselves to other people in order to make them look more like Christ. Paul expounded upon this approach more by showing the Christians' relationship to the law. Christians are not under the Jewish ceremonial law, so they have the freedom to do or not to do those things under that law in order to better share the gospel with them. Christians are still under the moral law of God, though, as in we still have to keep the moral, holy commandments of God that have not changed from the beginning of time. 
And finally, the law of God is fulfilled and summarized in the law of Christ. We saw in Galatians 6.2 that it's bearing one another's burdens. In Galatians 5.14, it's you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of Christ that we are now under as believers is the approach of love and self-denial that we are to have in order to relate to and reach the unsaved by getting to them on their level, having a sympathetic heart towards them and sharing the gospel with them. And then Paul showed us his purposeful aim. Because if your aim is not in the right place, then our approach will be completely thrown off and our efforts will be in vain. And Paul's purposeful aim was threefold. We saw it was to win, to save, and to share. Paul lived this life of Christ-like sacrificial love to win, to win others to see and savor savor the glory of God forever. Paul also had this Christ-like approach to life to save others from the very real, very palpable wrath of God. We talked about how widespread a problem it is for us today that we do not fully understand or believe that the wrath of God is coming and it restricts our evangelism. If we truly believed in the wrath of God, we would be evangelizing all the time to try and save people from that wrath. We would be sharing the gospel with them, pleading with them to repent and turn in saving faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, where the message will really pick up today, Paul's aim was to share. To share with them and his blessings. This did not just mean simply being in fellowship with other believers in the gospel, but more importantly, it means that Paul lived this sacrificial life of Christ-like love and living his life of the gospel so that he himself would become a partaker of the gospel. Paul knew that those who do not live for the gospel do not ultimately partake of it and its blessings. Paul examined his life by asking himself, am I living for the gospel? Am I sharing it with others? Am I sacrificing for it? Because if he wasn't, he would conclude that he had not been changed by it at all. And living by his Christ-given principle, he proved the reality of his participation in the gospel. So we have learned in summary out of the first two messages, the first message to start to share the gospel out of humble submission to it as your greatest pleasure, seeking to remove all obstacles and put aside all rights. By, second message, living the sacrificial life of love that Christ has called you to under his law with the aim of winning others to him, of saving them from the wrath of God and proving the reality of your partaking of the blessings of the gospel. And if you remember last time, I said in that very challenging purpose statement in verse 23 that this was a transition point into a conversation about personal holiness starting in verse 24 and extending into the rest of chapter 10. So leading up to this point, Paul has really hammered the laying aside of rights for the sake of the gospel, sacrificing for it in Christ-like love. And then in chapter 10, on the other side of these verses, he talks about personal holiness, fleeing from idolatry and fleeing from sin. So in this middle section of verses in 23 to 27, we have a unique transition section where Paul is making a connection between one's personal witness and one's personal holiness. And this is a subsection that we're going to call a race, the race for holiness, the race for holiness. Paul is exhorting us not just to share the gospel, but to live a life that reflects the gospel you profess and preach. Because if you do not, if you do not live a life that reflects it, preaching the gospel will ultimately mean nothing for you. And you do this by first living that life of self-denying Christ-like sacrificial love that we have talked about before, and also in your disciplined 
life of holiness. Paul is teaching that he not only gives, he not only lives a life of Christ-like self-denial, but also a disciplined life of holiness, all in order that he may work out his salvation and be a partaker of the gospel which he preaches to others. And the outline today we'll be looking through as we see how Paul does this is the destination in 23 to 25 and the discipline in 26 to 27. At this time, I would encourage you to take out your Bibles and join me in the privilege that we have of opening God's Word and reading it together. And this morning, we will be in 1 Corinthians 9, 23 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 23 to 27. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. May God bless the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we take the time this morning to recognize you as holy, as infinitely good, as infinitely powerful, infinitely great, and mighty. And you, in all of your infinite majesty, have revealed yourself to us in your word and in your Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation and for our growth. And Lord, as we search your word today to learn how to better serve you, how to better live this life that you have called us to live, I pray that we would be diligent in seeking this intentionality of discipline. That we would be diligent in seeking to examine our lives and to check ourselves and to remove those things from our life that is besetting this discipline. Father, be with us today as we do this. Be Be with me as I preach. I pray that I would not be Contrary to your word, I would be consistent with what it says. And Father, finally I pray that you would give these people the grace to hear and take with them a better sermon with your spirit than I am about to preach. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first, Paul discusses the destination in verses 23 to 25, the destination. And in verse 23, as we have discussed, Paul is saying... I live this sacrificial life of Christ, this Christ-like example to prove the reality of my authentic faith and participation in the gospel. As in, if I did not live this sacrificial life of Christ-like self-giving love, I would prove my faith to be inauthentic, and thus I would not be a partaker of the gospel at all. 
Then Paul explains this a little more in the following verses by giving us an analogy. And this analogy is not just Paul being really fascinated with sports or something, but this is, he uses this analogy because the city of Corinth is where the Isthmian games were held every two to three years. It's where races were very common. The Corinthians were, I guess, big sports junkies, you could say. And so this analogy really lands well with the Corinthians. It's like if I was going to make an analogy here, if I was going to write a letter as an inspired author of God, he would probably inspire me to write something about like farming or like Honda or something. I mean, that's probably what it would be. So this analogy really lands well with him. It really, it kind of, it's almost an application of what he has just said. I subject myself to all, I, I learn the practices and customs of other people, and this is how he's writing to the Corinthians in just this small way. But anyways, in this analogy, Paul says this life is like a race, a gospel race. There are many who enter this race, as in there are many who profess to be running for the prize of the gospel. And first, I want to clarify that this analogy does not, is not stretched to every single word. As in, Paul is not saying that only one person actually wins the prize of the gospel. That's absolutely ludicrous. It's very unbiblical. More than one person is saved. But he is saying that the runners in the gospel race should all run in the same manner and with the same amount of great drive, tenacity, and discipline as the one who wins the regular race. In the gospel race, finishing the race is obtaining the prize. The one who wins has the greatest tenacity. Because in order to finish, you have to run like this one who has won it. So if you are saying that you are in this race, then run like it. Go finish the race. Live your life for the gospel by running this race. However, every race is run for a reason. I know very few professional athletes who truly follow the saying, it's not about winning, it's just about having fun. Because professional athletes would not be getting paid millions of dollars and spending every waking second of their lives training and dieting and disciplining their bodies so aggressively if there was not some other goal in mind outside of just simply having fun. There's always some sort of goal. There's always the top of another mountain. There's always a destination that motivates that athlete to train and run with more fervor. There's some sort of end result that pushes that person to do one more rep, to push through one more day of a diet, to push through one more lap. And Paul is saying here that we, Christians, those who profess Christ and are thus in this gospel race, need to run towards the prize as these runners do. We need to look towards the destination, see it, and then with our deep desire to have the pleasure of obtaining it, go run after it, seeking it with fervor. And so the question is, what is our destination? What is our goal that we are to look to as we strive towards it, running this race with fervor? Paul says it's three things. It's the blessings of the gospel, it's the prize, and the imperishable crown. To run this race, as Paul is saying, to prove the reality of our faith is first by looking to our destination as our motivation. And those destinations are the blessings of the gospel, the prize, and the imperishable crown. And so first, the blessings of the gospel. In verse 23, Paul says that his aim of living his life of the gospel is that he might partake of the gospel in its blessings. We know this. We've talked about this, I think, three times today now. I'm sorry. Um, so if that is his aim, though, in the life that he lives, then it is what he looks forward to as his destination. 
It is part of what drives him and motivates him to run the gospel race in the manner that he does. But what are the blessings of the gospel that Paul so desperately runs for? What is it about the blessings of the gospel that it makes Paul run this race the way he does to finish it? Well, the gospel is what brings salvation. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul emphasizes this again in 1 Corinthians 1.24 when he says, Christ crucified the gospel is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he explains what that is a couple verses later in verse 30. He says, And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So what is the gospel? It is wisdom from God. And what does that involve? He says, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. The gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, it is the power of God for salvation. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God, which is righteousness, sanctification, redemption. In other words, it is salvation. In the gospel, you have been redeemed by Jesus' blood, made holy in God's sight, and given a righteousness that would never have belonged to you, all by being united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, I set my eyes on that gospel, and that is all the motivation I need, for with it, I am saved if I were not to run after that goal, that destination, then I would be saying that I will not be a partaker of all that the gospel promises. What a motivation. What a destination. Run towards it. And second, Paul says, you run towards the prize. In verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. So we know we are supposed to run as one who would win the race as a regular Isthmian Games race with great tenacity and fervor to get the prize. But what is this prize? Paul clues us in on what he considers the prize to be in Philippians 3:14, which he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize is the upward call of God, which in Hebrews 3.1 is referred to as a heavenly calling, which points to a future life with God. Life forever in heaven. Streets of gold, the pearly gates, no more sorrow, no more pain, tears, suffering, heartache, death. Eternal peace, eternal security, eternally being with friends and family in heaven. How glorious is that? However, I want to ask you, this question that John Piper asks frequently. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all your friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if you had all that and Christ was not there? The tragedy of not running after the prize of the upward call of God in Christ is not that you would not obtain heaven and all of its stuff. It's that you would not obtain Jesus Christ standing in his presence, in his radiating glory for all eternity. God is the ultimate good of the gospel, and that is what we're running to obtain. 
Simply eternal life in heaven is not the prize. The prize is eternal life in heaven with God. How does the old song go again? What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And he takes me by the hand and he leads me through the promised land. What a day, O oh, glorious day, that will be. Run towards that. Run towards eternal life in heaven with God. He's the ultimate destination. He's the ultimate motivation. Just to catch a glimpse of his glory is worth running rampant, is worth giving up your life for. So run that you may obtain the prize. Finally, Paul says the destination we are running to is an imperishable crown. An imperishable crown. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So what is this imperishable crown? Again, we turn to Paul to answer the question. In a familiar passage in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul, using this race analogy again, is looking forward to that final day, the day of judgment, the day when he will be given a crown of righteousness by the Lord himself. Indeed, all who loved Christ's appearing will receive this imperishable crown of righteousness. All those who are true believers, who had saving faith in Christ. Thus, this imperishable crown of righteousness is the fulfilled promise of a perfect eternal righteousness given to those who had faith in Christ. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ now, but we still sin. We're not perfect. We still mess up. And like Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. While on this earth we still hunger and thirst for righteousness that we do not have, that we will not be able to obtain until that day when we are given the imperishable crown of righteousness. If we strive to the end, if we run the race, we will obtain this crown. We will be eternally satisfied. And I would be remiss to not point out Paul's overall logic here. If these runners in these Isthmian games, if these athletes put in so much time, put in so much effort, they wake up early, they go to bed late, they work out daily, they go on crazy diets, they get into ridiculous shape, they work so hard just for a perishable crown, for some olive leaves, then how much more should we believers in Christ be disciplined in running the race for an imperishable crown of righteousness of infinite value? How much more, how much more earnestly, how much more fervently should we run this race for the prize of eternal life in heaven with God? How much more should we run for salvation and the blessings of the gospel? What infinitely glorious goals run towards them? That is our destination. But the question that we ask once again is how? What does running entail? How do we run? I've already mentioned several times in passing that we need to be disciplined. And this is 
the key to Paul's argument, really. He's saying that in order to work out your salvation, in order to make your election sure, to prove the reality of your participation in the gospel, we need to run the race with discipline in order to obtain the prize. It is not enough, it's not enough to simply know what the de- destination is and even desire it greatly. It's not enough just to look towards it and be like, okay, I'm going to run now. You must have the discipline to get there and to obtain the prize. Using Paul's analogy, I really don't know how much of you have run before um, in high school or college or whatever, but in my personal opinion, it's not very fun. Um, I I never ran track or anything, but we were run ragged in basketball and soccer season. And in soccer, we had to run this ridiculous sprinting drill called the Manchester drill. And I ended up being the only one on my team that finished it. (laughs) And the ending prize wasn't really much. It was like bragging rights and a sip of water and like a nod of approval from your coach, you know? Good job. And... But I still wanted all those things. And that was partly the thing that was pushing me. I was looking over to those prizes, and I was like, I am really pushed to, to get these prizes. However, during this extremely strenuous amount of running, I started to get very tired. And I started asking myself, everyone else has sat down, given up, and they're drinking their water already. And so why don't I just give up now? My body was like, I can't breathe. I'm, I'm sweating gallons and gallons of blood. I'm losing all my water. Just stop, dude, just stop. And I had to discipline my body and keep it under subjection to finish the drill, to finish the race. I turned to basic running disciplines like breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth, running not with fists but with open hands, not bending over during the short breaks between the sprints. Point being, the prize was great motivation. It was. But my body didn't care about the prize, really. And I had to bring my body under discipline in order to obtain the prize of rest that my very rapidly beating heart really wanted. This is Paul's point here. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, we are in a unique connection point of verses where Paul is connecting one's personal witness and one's personal holiness. And these two things are coming together at this point in Paul's exhortation to run the gospel race in a disciplined manner in order to obtain the gospel blessings, the prize, and the imperishable crown. Just like the runner who does not just run, but trains and disciplines himself in order to obtain the prize, we also need to train and discipline ourselves in personal witness and in personal holiness in order to reach our destination and obtain our glorious prizes. We are going to discuss the two disciplines that Paul connects in this passage and the ultimate purpose of this discipline But first, to lay a solid biblical foundation for our discussion, we are going to discuss the foundation of discipline first. The foundation of discipline. Paul is teaching here is that those who are not disciplined in their Christian walk, or in this case, race, will not finish the race. And those who do not finish the race do not obtain the prize. Meaning that those individuals who who never really truly were saved to begin with but were simply professing nominal Christians that were never actually changed by the gospel. So those who have true saving faith, who are truly changed by the gospel, those who will finish the race and obtain the prize, they will live a life of discipline to, and growth to get to that point. This is, some, this is something commonly known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which we have a Bible study, which I hope you are attending, um, and is a doctrine which this set of verses is teaching. This is a whole sermon 
in and of itself, but in order for the sake of time and just to properly understand and apply this text to your life, you cannot just walk away thinking that I need to just do better at discipline. I, under my own power, need to do better. This, my friends, is not what Paul is teaching. It's not the entirety of what Scripture teaches, and it's not the Gospel. No, perseverance, which is a life characterized by disciplined growth and holiness and sanctification to receive the prize of eternal life, while it is something that we actively do, we discipline ourselves, we strive for holiness, it is something that is God-enabled, God-preserved, God-gospel-centered, excuse me, and grace-driven. God-enabled, God-preserved, gospel-centered, and grace-driven. We're not going to spend long here, but we'll see some verses to be able to grasp this overarching idea. So first, this lifelong discipline to persevere to the end is God-enabled. As in, without God, we would not only never be able to discipline ourselves to finish the race, but we would never be able to even be on the track. We would never be able anywhere close to the arena. Without God's enablement, we would never be able to enter the gospel race, period. We are in the loser circle automatically. In order to even be allowed to sniff the finish line of eternal life and bliss with God, we needed God to give us the desire and the ability to even know about the prize, to then see it, and to run this race. Ephesians 1 says that God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. That seems like the finish line, the blessings of the gospel to me. And how did God bless us with those things? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God blessed, God chose, God predestined according to his will for his glorious grace. There was nothing desirable in us, and we didn't even want to be close to the finish line, but here we are running in this race. What? Why? Not because while we were dead in our trespasses and sins with a heart of stone, we looked around and said, man, wouldn't it be nice if we got to God? And then proceed to pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and march to the finish line and say, here we are, God. No. It's because our running, our discipline, our perseverance is God-enabled first. God-enabled. Second, it's God-preserved. Our lifelong discipline to persevere is God-preserved. Don't think that once you got into the arena and started running, that God just took his hands away. Otherwise, each time we sin, we'd be thrown out of the race. We'd be disqualified from the prize. Instead, God preserves us to the end, guaranteeing our perseverance. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. God seals us in our union with Christ, with his own divine spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and that is eternal. We who have been God-enabled are God-sealed. We're God-preserved for his glory. So let this be an encouragement to you as you run and as you struggle and as you do all this discipline that God is preserving you. Trust in him. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, Trust in the one who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, our lifelong discipline to persevere is gospel-centered. 
We never stop needing the gospel. We never stop needing the gospel. 1 Corinthians one twenty four again, the word of Jesus Christ and him crucified to those who are called is what? It is the power of God and is the wisdom of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the center of the Christian life and is the means by which we are saved and continue to be sustained through our race. It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. It is the means by which grace was given at salvation. It is the means by which grace is given still. Jesus Christ and the gospel is how we run with discipline. Hebrews 12, 1-3 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus found our faith. We are God-enabled. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. We are God-preserved. And how are we supposed to keep running this race with endurance, looking unto him and what he's done in the gospel? Preaching ourselves the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we must do, soaking our hearts in it and thus allowing it to change our lives. And this gospel-centered discipline is how our disciplined race is grace-driven. Our lifelong discipline to persevere is grace-driven. It is essential that we understand that discipline does not come through performance. Discipline does not come through performance. But it only comes through God-given grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The impetus of a hard-working endurance in the Christian life, the endurance to run the race with discipline to reach the prize, is grace alone. Grace alone. Paul says it three times in that verse we just read. Though we work, though we strive, though we press on toward the goal of the upward call of God, though we must intentionally discipline ourselves to live holy lives, our efforts to persevere are ultimately grace-driven, driven by God's grace in the gospel. So this is the foundation of our discipline. When we run the gospel race with great discipline, pressing on toward the goal, trying to obtain the prize, it is evidence that we have been God-enabled and God-preserved and that we are gospel-centered and grace-driven. A life not characterized by discipline, a life that falls away in the race, a life that is not persevering is a life that has not been ever any one of these things. But now that we've laid this foundation, I'm going to turn to the discipline of evangelism. First, Paul is exhorting us to this discipline. The immediate context of the passage is everything that we have talked to up to this point. In verse 23, he says he does it all for the sake of the gospel, meaning he lives this self-giving, sacrificial, Christ-like life. He just went through, we just went through two sections of text saying how Paul went about disciplining himself in his evangelism. He first did it through humbly submitting himself to the gospel, right? He looked unto Jesus, savoring him as, our, as his highest pleasure, soaked his heart in the grace of the gospel, and then disciplined himself to share the gospel. He gave up his rights. He became like other people. He subjected himself to all. He 
This is how he beat his body into subjection, how he disciplined his body. That took a lot of discipline. Discipline that Paul tells us in these verses is a characterization of the one who perseveres to the end. Humbly submit to the gospel. Humble yourself as a servant of all in Christ-like self-denial, for this should be a part of our discipline in our race as we obey God in sharing the gospel with others, proving the reality of our faith. So practice this discipline of evangelism. Then moving on, we have the discipline of all things. Of all things, not just evangelism. We cannot say that Paul is alone talking about the discipline of evangelism when speaking of this verse. One interpretation of these verses is that Paul is only talking about evangelism. And that living this self-denying life and thus his running the race to the prize and being disqualified, all of this only entails to some specific prize given in heaven to certain believers for being disciplined in this particular way. This interpretation waters down Paul's strong statements here about the entirety of the Christian life and it ultimately dismisses two things, the context of the passage and the usage of a very specific word. And so the very specific word that he uses is in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, all things. And in verse 23, I do it all, all. Paul is not narrowly talking about just one aspect of his life. He's not just talking about his approach to evangelism. No, he is painting a huge picture all of his life. It's as if we would say that the only discipline an athlete needs is to eat a healthy diet. Would that make that athlete disciplined for the entire race to reach the finish, to win the prize? Well, of course not. It's absurd. Similarly, Paul is saying, yes, here is one discipline the discipline of evangelism, but also you have to have discipline in all things, all things. And then second, the context of this passage lies just before chapter 10's discussion on holiness. And chapter 10 starts with, the first word is for, for, directly connecting it to everything that Paul has said in these verses. As we read this morning, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 is somewhat of a Second analogy, it's an example about how there can be certain people who drink from the rock of Christ, who hear from the word, who say that they are Christians, who can be so close to the people of God and the things of God, but yet still turn away and be destroyed in judgment for sins, such as sexual immorality, as idolatry, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. They did not take heed, so they fell. They did not discipline themselves, so they fell. They ran aimlessly and boxed the air, and so they were disqualified. So if there are more disciplines, then what are some of these other disciplines? Well, Paul summarizes all of discipline as self-control, disciplining your body, and keeping your body under control. There are copious amounts of desires and impulses of the flesh that the believer has to put down each and every day and choose a greater desire in God. This is ultimately what self-control is. It's working. It's God-enabled, God-preserved, gospel-centered, and grace-driven work to not desire the things of your flesh, but instead desiring the things of God. Looking at chapter 10, verse 6, we see this. It says that these things took place that we might not desire evil as they did. We are to be disciplined in not desiring evil. We put off the old man, we put on the new, we need to not desire the old any longer, but only put on the new man every single day. 
That is Christian discipline in a phrase. Desiring things of the old man will lead you to being disqualified. Putting on the things of the new man will lead you to persevering to the prize. Ask yourself, what are the things that are of the old man? What are the things that your flesh desires most? What besets you? Then looking towards the prize, work earnestly and with much zeal and fervor to put off those things each and every day. Discipline yourself by taking away the things that tempt you. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, when talking about lust, he says, if your right eye calls you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. He's calling us to radical discipline, to take out the things that so easily beset us and to run the race with endurance as we look to Christ, to flee from unrighteousness, to resist the devil, to beat your body into subjection to do it. Set your mind on things above, whatever is virtuous, as Jeff read this morning. Think on the virtuous things of God and nothing else. Discipline your body. But we cannot just put off the old. We need to put on the new. Then putting on the new man is very, very important. If you just put off the old and not put on the new, then we're not doing anything at all. Pursuing righteousness, godliness, patience, self-control, faith, hope, love, steadfastness. Putting on the new man is not super complicated either. It is done by daily reading of the word, by daily being in prayer, by daily fellowshipping with other people. That sounds, wait, that sounds really familiar. Holy cow. We know our discipline is grace-driven, and so what are the primary means of grace? What is the word of grace? It is the throne of grace. It is the fellowship of grace. It is the key to putting on the new man. It is the key to our discipline. And finally, we are going to look at the purpose of discipline like, why are we going through these great lengths to discipline ourselves? Why is this so important? Well, the positive purpose of our discipline is, as Paul says, to reach that destination, to obtain the infinitely glorious prize, to become a partaker of the gospel. As 2 Peter 1.10 says, to strive to make your calling and election sure, to work out your salvation, to prove the reality of your faith. But the more convicting way of saying it here is, and we've said it several times, but Paul makes this final statement, so I want to devote a whole point to this. But he says, Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We go to these great lengths to discipline ourselves so that we live the lives we are called to live, because if we do not, then we were never called to begin with. Hebrews 12.8 says, it states this extremely clearly. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If your sin is besetting you, then you are called to lay it off, to put off the old man. So let me ask you, what in your life is worth trading eternal glory for eternal damnation? Is it sex? Is it porn? Is it being loose with your tongue? Is it anger? Is it pride? Jesus says your own eye is not even worth having if it means going to hell. Not even your arm is worth it. God would rather see you crawl into hell than see you run. God would rather see you crawl into heaven 
than to see you run into hell. Kevin DeYoung said this, We are not good fighters. We make excuses. We don't get radical. We pray a few prayers. We feel bad all the time. We tell a friend to ask how we're doing once in a while, and then that's it. We need more decisive action than that. Avoid the movies. Get rid of your internet. Don't kiss before marriage. Throw out your TV. Tear out your eye. Whatever it takes. Because there are too many whole-bodied people going to hell and not enough spiritual amputees going to heaven. After examining yourself, don't think that because you said that prayer one time, or just because you go to church, or just because you have even shared the gospel with someone, that means that you are in. Or that it means you ever have actually displayed true saving faith whenever you look at the rest of your life and the vast majority of your life is swallowed in sin. What does it matter if I preach the gospel? This is what Paul is saying. What does it matter if I preach the gospel? Or if I go to church? Or if I even said that one prayer, but then behind closed doors I live as an unbeliever? All of those things have absolutely zero effect on my eternal destination if I live the rest of my life as someone going to hell. No amount of feel good, God is love, outward works, look at me, I'm a Christian perfume, will ever be able to prevent God from smelling the stench of hellfire smoke on you. Examine yourself. Be radical. Be disciplined. Cut off the things that need to be cut off in order to live the holy life that God has called you to. Repent and believe the gospel. To believer and unbeliever alike, the call is always repent and believe the gospel. Galatians 6, 8-9 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Go out today and sow to the Spirit and reap eternal life. Don't grow weary. Read the Word. Be in prayer. Fellowship with others. Share the Gospel. Humbly submit to the gospel as your highest pleasure. Remove all obstacles by making yourself a servant to all with the aim to win others to Christ, to save others from wrath, and to share with them by proving the reality of your participation in the gospel by living a disciplined life, a disciplined life that is God-enabled, God-preserved, gospel-centered, and grace-driven. Running to obtain the blessings of the gospel, the prize of eternal life with God, the imperishable crown of righteousness and eternal satisfaction, and glory, so that you would not be disqualified. This is the word of God from 1 Corinthians 9, 23-27, which I now commit to your further study and faithful obedience until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are not left by ourselves to obey the things from your word, that we are grace-driven, we are gospel-centered. We've been enabled by you, and we will be preserved by you. So, Lord, I pray that each and every believer in here, in this room, would hold to the fact that we are preserved by you, 
that we would look to you as our strength, as our sufficiency, and our strive, and our race for holiness. Father, I pray for each and every person in this room that we would examine ourselves today, that we would find those things that so easily beset us, that we find the things that tempt us, and that we would take them out, take the measures needed in order to serve you and to live for you. Lord, thank you for being faithful. Thank you that we are not tempted beyond what we are able. Thank you for sustaining us to the end, that promise. And Lord, I pray that we would all, each and every day, look towards the prize, that we would see the prize of eternal life with you, with the blessings of the gospel, of the imperishable crown of righteousness, and the promises of being in eternity with you, and have hope and peace and drive to go and see that. Lord, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.